Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Hi, everyone. This is Full Service Radio. So this is District Durkas. We're live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. A Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama, and a Durka from Algeria. Aloha. That's Lilia. We live again in Washington, D.C., and we get together every week to talk live here to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc., and all the prisms and schisms in between. So if you guys are tuning in, this is our fifth episode. We're so excited to be talking to you. We've thought about this episode. I've had a, a long and kind of exciting week myself. How was your week, Lilia? It was cool. Total recovery from the hellish flu. That's awesome. I think I'm getting it, though. <laughs> on another note. Sharing is caring. So we're, the weather has been super confusing. Um, and I think as a dirt guy, I kind of struggle to find out the, the bright balance of what to wear because I, I tend to overdress in cold weather as a Durka I tend not to assign uh, temperatures to a certain geographic location that's so cold is cold hot is hot adaptation is real that's that's uh, politically correct Durka not really I, I really get sick of people telling me why aren't you cold you're from Algeria oh no that's that's you annoying know? when they assume you're from a desert immediately or if you're from a warmer climate that you you so have less of a resilience. So what's what's Algeria like? Like, give us the climate just to... Well, let me seize the opportunity to say that Algeria is the biggest country in Africa. Therefore, you have many climates. I mean, it's Mediterranean on the coast. Then you have big chains of mountains. It gets very cold. You get snow. And then the desert. So instead of talking to you guys about the weather, I'm just going to repeat the same thing about Yemen. But all I'm going to say is I actually come from... A really high place. It's super high, almost compatible to the mountains in Colombia, and it gets pretty chilly. Um, so, and also an exciting thing is I've never seen the desert in person. So that's another fun fact about Durkas. Correct. I had to fly, like we had to organize going to the desert. That was a thing. We spent Christmas there. It, it's not, yeah. Was it a warm Christmas? <sighs> no, not at night. It gets super, super cold. Yeah. So we have an episode today that's lined up and we're going to talk about an important concept. So we're going to tell our audience that we're sorry, but we're token. So what's your experience with tokenism? So when we decided to talk about tokenism, honestly, I was looking for the token Durka, the token Arab, Muslim, whatever in popular culture. And that doesn't exist. So I was like, oh, oh man, we're not even cool enough, perceived as cool enough to have a token in popular culture like we don't have there's always like the nerdy 
Asian token, the hip black friend token. There's not like the we're talking about Western yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. talking about here being in DC, being in the United States. There's no maybe in France I could see that. And then I was like, well, let me take that to my personal experience. And then I was like, oh, that's what happened to me in Brussels in art class. So tokenism is basically taking one segment of a culture or perceived mm-hmm. and then making a generalization about the identity of that group. Sure. Um, so I was 10 and in Belgium in my first art class and we were going through slides through art periods and um, suddenly we have reached Henri Matisse. So he's, uh, a, he's a French contemporary artist. He revolutionized. Ah, he, Henry Matisse. Yes. Ah, merci. Yes. He's, he's the likes of Picasso. He's yes. one of the founders of modern art. Phenomenal work, yeah. Exactly. So she's asking us, so who likes this artist? Everybody, you have 50% of the class raising their hands. But I get singled out. Do you raise your hand as well? Yes, of course. Okay, sure. I, I loved what I was seeing. Um, she singled me out. And she was like, guess why... She likes Matisse. Why? And then she asked me, she was like, do you know why you like Matisse? <laughs> um, do you know why you like Matisse? Well, at that time, I was kind of forming my art sensibility, sensitivity. So I didn't have, it was basically, I'm exposed to this, I like it. Yeah, colors. I was 10 years old. And then she goes on in front of everyone that the, the reason why I liked Matisse was because I was Muslim and Algerian and therefore I had a propensity for abstract art or art that resembled mosaics i had no idea what the hell she was talking about yeah okay but i do remember the frustration of being singled out and being told why i like something due to what she thought was my identity so she tokened me uh against my will I became her token Durka. That's kind she of a stretch, it. though. Like, I see how, geogra- like, geometric art is considered Islamic, and that's the repetitive, the repetitiveness of it is considered, you know, again, Islamic. It's kind of, to me, it resembles um, just any kind of, like, sacred art tends to be geometric. So for her to draw that assumption considering that henry matisse's work is not really that geometric we were in that later phase where he was just doing some competing with figurines that looked like they could be on the un postcard we were through fauvism so so what's interesting is i kind of would have taken that as a compliment but i was 10 i just took it as you're imposing some biased view of what you think my culture is and dictating what i like i would have been like wow you think i'm so deep like, I would have been like, wow, like I, at 10, you think I'm that profound, fantastic. It's not even about profound. It's really, this is her analysis. She felt great about making a link between, you know, abstract art and Islamic art. And that's her little bias. And she, she used me for that thought. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's another how she way. tokened me. She allowed her discourse to p- take place through me. And it wasn't true. It wasn't based on anything that was real. I was forming my taste. I didn't know yet why I liked what I liked. I was just starting to like what I liked. So I, I think a, a good way of her doing it would have been to be like, oh, you know, actually, you like it, Lilia, and you should be, you'd be like, yeah, I should be like, hey, you know what? Actually, in your culture, this art resembles this art. I That's mean, already I making an assumption about my culture. Uh, yeah. And also just because you're from that culture doesn't mean you cannot like but other types art, of art or, or have a preference but as for an something art that's teacher, not abstract. If anything, you could argue the opposite. If you come from a place, you're more attracted to the other one. So. The opposite, sure. 
But I mean, she could have just, instead of telling you what you like, she could have said, well, you know what? It resembles this kind of art from this part of the world. So if she does know about Algerian art and Islamic art, then that's kind of... Still tokenism. She cannot use me to make that statement. She can make that statement alone, but not by taking me as an example. That's where the tokenism kicks in. I kind of I would have liked it. I would have taken it as a compliment and I would have taken it as an opportunity to let other people kind of ask more questions about my culture, even though I had nothing to do with that. Except I didn't consider that my culture. Fair enough. Yeah. I that, mean, you're, that in, wasn't, you're in Brussels. My culture was, no, it's not even about Brussels. Like, that's an assumption about my culture. We're talking about my taste, my artistic taste. And that was just forming. Sure. So she's assuming you know how i feel so i had no i had i was 10 years old i had no context of this is why i like this this is my culture do you understand like she was limiting my experience to show off about what she thought she knew about islamic art and in correlation to henry matisse it was an imposition she wasn't opening a debate she was closing it so what's interesting is i find that a lot of your moments are are captured at least on on this show on district durkas are in hindsight Right. Like you look back and you realize this happened and then you kind of analyze it. On the other hand, I kind of don't have any stories from my childhood. And that's mostly because I, I lived in Yemen and I was born and raised there. I didn't have experience with the West till I was much older. And so my experience t- tends to be, you know, when I'm an adult and I kind of can grasp the concept right away. And it bothers me then. And, you know, for you, you feel like you were a token at 10, 10 years old. I feel like I was a token when I was like a full grown woman. And by that, I mean that a lot of the people I meet here, and this is how I feel like I'm a token, I feel that sometimes men want to date me because I, you know, especially if they're vanilla kind, vanilla personality, I feel like they want to date me because I check all the marks that they need to look interesting, right? So I become this emblem or this trophy, and it would be about, oh, you know what? She travels and she does this and she speaks several languages and she's done that. And she's ethnic and she's Muslim. So check, check, check. What does it say about me? I'm a tolerant person. I'm open-minded. I'm interesting. And then I start to question about why are people interested in me? Is it because of these check marks or is it because they actually do know me? And to me, that's kind of created, you know, I wasn't really aware of it, but as as I get older, I'm very cautious of that because I do realize that in, in, you know, in the age of Instagram and Facebook, it's so easy to just be that photo person, you know, the person that checks all the marks and, and no real connection can exist. And the more I think about it, it's not just here in the West. I think that even some liberal Arab men do the same thing where they need, I, I think women are actually more victims to tokenism than men because they are always that trophy. I mean, even in English, you have trophy wives, right? Like the ones that do everything and look perfect. But I think in a sense, being a Durka, you have a specific type. So what are the expectations as a Durka girlfriend token? What, what, what are the expectations? Well, they like that you're from a dangerous place, you know, like, oh yeah, in her country, there are like suicide bombings or like there's some killing or there's some anger. And me being with her is like, it almost gives this edge that this person is risky or is daring and courageous. But don't you feel like the tokenism dissipates the minute you don't feed into, we need your help? Oh, uh, I don't think that I walk around ever needing anyone's help. But I think that the idea is that I'm with this kind of person. I think that, women like 
you know, like like the people that I just described, women from Durka lands that have survived in the U.S. that are independent. I think that a lot of times they're threatening. And I think a lot of times they're hard to understand because their background is so complex and there's so many ideas in their mind that can't kind of work with each other, right? Coming from such a different place and assimilating here is difficult. Um, and I think in a, in a weird way, I think the person that's with you is like, oh, I, you know, like, and I'm talking about very few cases where the person would be absolutely vanilla, has nothing to offer, just a cliche and a product of everything that this culture has created. So in a sense, um, a person who may have, um, especially in, in the part of, you know, this part of America that we live in, you know, like the East Coast, it'd be like wealthy, uh, travels for luxury, is interested in foreign affairs, uh, but doesn't so really So are you a good token? Much. Because I feel like I'm such a bad token. Like that, that's not even going to happen because you see that coming instantly. And so if you're not a token, then it doesn't happen. So are you... I don't think it's that easy to are spot. You, are you playing into the tokenism? I don't think it's that easy to spot. To the, the whole, you know... That's uh, why I feel like to me, the tokenism is, is basically... You're cool as long as you're inferior. You're cool as long as you're stretching your hand and asking salvation. Then, then well, you're I think cool. in theory you're cool, right? So but immediately the minute, they but the minute you, you say respect my sovereignty and no, this is not my read on what's happening yeah, in out. my country, then they're out. Exactly, that's and that's exactly what happens. So that's, that's exactly why I feel what happens. I've never had that because I'm I'm like the worst. I'm the I'm anti-token. That my experience here in the U.S. is that a lot of people cannot handle a woman if she's really angry with them. Correct. And I think that's difficult because there are times where... That's the whole world. I mean, no. You know, the part of the world that I'm from and my family, women are loud and they're aggressive. They're portrayed as weak, but they're the strongest people I've ever met. They are assertive. They're... They're the ones who are in charge of what, what happens, what goes down. They are an authority. Like the matriarch in my family was my grandmother. And she had to meet everyone that came into the house. So in that sense, coming here to the U.S. where it's supposed to be like free women, liberalism, feminism, all these ideas. I come here and I'm like, wait, when I meet a person in the West and I talk to them, if I raise my voice, it's an issue. Why are you yelling at me? It's like, um because you did something annoying <laughs> you know and it's, it's are you like feeding into the whole like brown people are louder no i'm not feeding into the whole brown people are louder but i am saying that i am passionate and animated and i'm not going to control my feelings so that a so man that's can be summer. happy that's you that's, that's totally me exactly so but that's what i'm not saying like is your culture that's your personal like take on everything you've experienced and that's what you made of it. Absolutely. And what I'm saying is when people meet me, then, you know, the, those whole things that they like about me are exactly the things they don't like about me in the long run. Right. My aggressiveness, my, you know, everything that they wanted to display and portray about the, their character are exactly the kind of things that they can't handle. And, and that's a problem. The wild Durka stallion. So we're, we're just... You, Everybody who's listening to us, we're here at the Lion Hotel. This is Full Service Radio. How about we take a break? We're talking about tokenism, and we'll be right back.
Hi, everyone. We're here at Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan. I've been talking with my colleague Lilia about tokenism and moments where we've experienced tokenism. Uh, this is District Durkas. So pretty much our show is about a Durka from Yemen, and that's me, and a Durka from Algeria. Hey. We live in Washington, D.C., and we get together here every week to talk about different topics that include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, cetera, and all the prisms and schisms in between. So you talked about your experience as a young token at a very young age, right, at the age of 10. I kind of came back in, my experience came in at a later age. Uh, different type of tokenism, still something that I assume a lot of people feel. Um, and I, I think, you know, sometimes I think about why why us as tokens. I mean, I guess because we're a minority, obviously. Yeah, but you know what's interesting, interesting about being a token, like a Durka token, is that when you look at the news or even, you know, the movies, we're not really present as token, and yet there's so much on the Middle East that's on repeat, that's the focus of the news in the US, but then there's no token Arab or token Muslim. So I feel like it's a it's a vicarious form of tokenism. We have experts from you know, they're not from North Africa or yeah. Middle East telling us what's going on. Yeah, so there's the Western who's interested in the Middle East token kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, so we are vicarious. Like the the token is the news. It's the Middle East. It's what's going on there. We don't even need to be in the room is what I mean. For, yeah, but to don't be you token. Think some Westerners fetishize and romanticize being in the Middle East. Absolutely. Like it's, like it's a kick, right? Like it's... It is a kick, but what I mean is like other forms of tokens include, because the point of tokenism is like this false notion of inclusion. So you will have your quota of Asians, of African-Americans or Indians, but I don't see that in, in, you know, in the tokenization of... Arabs or Muslims, yeah. they don't even need us to be present, to be talking about us or fetishize us. So in, in that sense, I feel it's a special brand of tokenism. So we talked about that actually last week. And then I brought up the subject of Lawrence of Arabia. Ugh, that douche again. Lawrence of Arabia, I heard and I keep hearing is a good film. So I'm going to reserve judgment till I hear the yeah. movie because I heard it's a fantastic film. All right. Well, we'll do that as a... Well, I actually have a colleague of mine that I've worked with in the past. He's a journalist and he's also uh, a fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. He's actually from the area and he's from Baltimore and comes to D.C. frequently, but lives currently in the Middle East. He's uh, based in Beirut, but travels around a lot. Our guest for today is going to be Adam Barron. Adam, are you with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Cool. So Lilia and I are here talking about why do so many journalists want to go to the Middle East? Obviously, you're a journalist who's made a name for yourself. You've worked harder. So, you know, there are two types of journalists, the ones who are genuinely interested in the area and ones who just do it. Hey, um, Adams. I don't know if you can hear me, but. Yeah. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> Adam, can you hear Lilia? Hi. Yeah, I can. Okay, great. Great. So we're just wondering what your perspective is on why so many journalists want to go to the Middle East. Uh, no, I mean, so I sort of started journalism at, at a funny time. I graduated college 2010, uh, went to Yemen in January 2011, and then the Arab Spring happened. So it was something I almost kind of fell into by, by accident. And I think that example which happened to, to a handful of colleagues of mine, kind of set off this idea from sort of 
a lot of sort of ambitious young you know, Westerners at the risk of essentializing. Of this idea is sort of the Middle East as as a way to jumpstart your career and move forward. And I mean, we all know the tropes. Uh, you know, you see it in that in that Beirut movie that's supposedly coming out that makes the entire Lebanese civil war about like a blonde couple. I know it's um, awful. Of uh, of you know this whole idea of of the heroic Westerner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think, I mean, there's an element of that to even greater extent. It's this sort of idea of of, of excitement. I think there is this sort of romanticization, especially in sort of post-Arab spring, uh, in that sort of post-Arab spring, spring period. And you had people who completely inserted themselves, you know, into the story. I can think of a number of different examples of this. There was, uh, there was the famous case of this one, uh, this one Western journalist uh, who, I think, went to Bahrain, uh, you know, for a, illegally on a tourist visa, you know, where she said, you know, whenever you go into Bahrain, you have to say specifically you're not entering to do journalism, etc. Regardless of whether you think that's appropriate, that's the rule. And so she went in. They have the videos of everything where she's admitting she's basically lying to Bahraini authorities, comes out and makes herself, you know, this huge martyr. Of course, nothing's really mentioned about any of the Bahrainis she was actually working with. It's just it's just all it's about, about her. her. And you see this pattern kind of emerging uh, again and again, you know, right. I, as, so as after... Sama knows, I, I, I spent uh, I spent my time in a in an Arab jail and it was traumatizing and I never wanted to ever speak about it ever again. So it's always funny when you see people almost fetishizing this bragging about it. You yeah, know what so I mean? You're, I know you're the real deal because I mean, we've worked together and we've known each other for a while. But at the same time, um, I kind of just want to tell everyone that Yemen had a, you know, a war start three years ago. And since I had all kinds of young journalists who've never been to Yemen calling me like crazy, they need to be in Yemen now and they need to be writing about it. Um, I think to like the the older journalists or like uh, the people who've been there for a while, they felt like that was inappropriate of the young journalists to just kind of try and sweep in and make a quick name for themselves. But... You, we were talking earlier about a specific type of journalists that are kind of annoying. And I kind of stopped you because I wanted you to tell it to us on the radio. I mean, there is this sort of judgmental issue where you have people that view, I would say, come to the region and almost in a way of viewing it through their own preconceived racist, racist notions and, and viewing that and through the reporting from there. And I think that's part of the larger reason why a lot of a lot of the reporting is so skewed when you have people coming up um, and everything is kind of through the perspective of, of almost thrill chase using the, uh, using the region as, as a venue to, to thrill chase uh, while looking at the people around you as kind of the great unwashed. So Adam, wait, um, let's, let's give our audience kind of a sense of where you are. You live in Lebanon and you travel yes. all the time to so many countries in the Middle East yeah. and Europe. And I guess, in a sense, don't journalists kind of hang out with each other? I mean, t- to some extent, yes. Um, I, I mean, I have a few friends that are journalists, but then there's always, I don't know, it's funny, and there's always that kind of, in any sort of city, and I'm sure it's like this outside of the region as well, there's always that kind of journalist click. And I've always been somewhat outside of that. Although, don't get me wrong, especially from Yemen, uh, my former colleagues, uh, Iona Craig and Peter Salisbury, are both, you know, particularly good friends of mine. Uh, but, but even then, I felt like I sort of stuck out with the clique because let's face it: if I wanted to surround myself with white people, I would, 
I would have stayed in Baltimore. <laughs> so you, <laughs> you, know are, I mean? you are from Baltimore. Just give us an idea. Like, how, wait, what do you feel about Lawrence of Arabia? And what do you what uh, do you think your role is in the Middle East? How do you see it? I, don't know, I always used to resent when people compared me to Lawrence of Arabia because good for you. I, I mean, mostly because, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm Italian. I don't like being compared or viewed as a as a as a northern European. They're playing down. They're playing down my like olive, you know, my olive, my Mediterranean features. It's just, you know, either way. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, what is my role? In a way, it's this sort of idea of, of immersing yourself, coming to sort of at the risk of sounding like overly idealistic. On the one hand, kind of cutting through the crap and sort of going through and providing a nuanced and informed view of what's going on. Uh, but you know, also I think it is sort of building, building this level of understanding. It's, it's gotta be to some extent a, a full-time thing. You can't just be, you know, so doing, you know, filing a story and then clocking out and then just going to embassy parties one after the other, after the other, just ignoring the fact that you're in a different country. So I want to tell Lilia about the first time you came to my house in Yemen um, <laughs> I got this, I got this, you know, we, we got this meeting set up and he goes like, it was Ramadan and I, I we had him over in our house for iftar and we were like, we're going to have dinner together and break the fast. And his, his response to me was the most Yemeni thing ever where he asked, uh, am I going to be able to chew gat at your place? And I was like, not really. No one in my house chews gat. Gat is a narcotic for our audiences that are listening live to this. It's a, a narcotic that's chewed in Yemen, but is illegal in many other places. Um, and so I was like, all right. Um, okay. So he comes into my house dressed in a Yemeni zenna, which is like the traditional garment that men wear. And he came in on the back of a scooter uh, while it was raining. And he had gats in his pocket. And he was the most Yemeni person of like the most Yemeni journalist that I've met. He's just like in a rush and he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with my Yemeni friends at so-and-so's house to chew. And I was like, all right, um, cool. I'll read that article that you wrote. <laughs> and, um, and then the best part of this story is that uh, Sama's brother was wearing a Ralph Lauren polo shirt. When yeah, I that was awesome. My brother, my brother was like very well dressed. You call my brother the, the whitest Arab, right? Or some shit. Oh like God, that. don't say this because he's probably listening and he'll give me shit. Well, I just kind of want to know what you think. I think he'll appreciate it too. I, he might even accept it. So what would be the Durka version of an Oreo? Not that I subscribe to that notion. It's heinous. So that would be my brother. So that's that's her question, Adam. What, like a falafel? I'm trying to think of like... Falafel. A, we heard of, that. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of like inside of falafel. Not like a falafel in like French bread. But they have that in Amman and it's generally not bad. Is, I don't know. <laughs> so your brother is generally not bad. Well, I want to know what the term is that you use to describe him. Oh, what to, to like a special term? I don't know. But then I don't know. All right, all right. Time, gonna... I agree that that's a problematic notion, particularly for the Arab world, because there's such a you know, what two thousand years, three thousand that... years of uh, of of intercultural mixing. Sure. So I'm I'm just gonna excuse you from this because I know my brother does listen to this. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna let it fly by. But the, my brother is the most preppy Yemeni I've ever seen, uh, and I'm sure that he's proud of it. He embraces it. <laughs> Um, so thank you, Adam, for your insight. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So what do you think of that, Lilia? Mm. 
Well, he seemed nice. <laughs> well, does it does it change your perspective on journalists that go to the Middle East? No, not really. Not really, because I don't know. We didn't get into what he's allowed to talk about. And what's his line of thinking? What does he report? So, yes, so, yeah. he, he seems full of good intentions. But at the end of the day, it's about how how much you can sell a story and then you get into the economics of journalism and yeah. that's a little bit more of a cynical. So to me, actually, Adam surpasses a lot of journalists in the sense that he's been in Yemen since, you know, he finished university in 2010 and the only reason he left Yemen is because he was kicked out of the country due to his reporting. Um, what was it about? So he would really report on current events and politics and he would be at the side of things to watch and see things. But what I really liked most is that he would he immersed himself fully where he would see those political actors continuously as friends and as, um, you know, subjects to write about, which, you know, fast forward, you know, today he's actually someone I would talk to for insight based on his connections and his relationship with other people. So I just feel like he did it well. You know, I, the only thing is like, I see this, as you know, he's diplomatic, he f befriends the people, and he writes the truth, which is like ultimately what you want from a journalist. And, and he. Well, and the minute you start saying somebody's writing the truth, that. Well, that hence in how he ended up being kicked out. A problem. No, I mean that there's no such thing as like the truth. In yeah, but at least factual reporting is what I mean. Yeah, but you can choose your facts. My problem with tokenist journalism is that it reports after a certain event. It's. For instance, um, so you were saying how the young generation is all thrill-seeking and they're frowned upon by their elders, but I know older journalists who are still thrill-seeking in Iran, in Syria. Yeah, those in, are like the genuine founders of In that. Libya, and the way they report about it is that they will tell you what is going on right now, like, oh, the French troops are deployed, but they will not say anything about how did we get here? Is that, should we be getting here? So it's this whole conversation that's truncated yeah that's tokenism you're there for the action you're reporting on the action and not on what led to it should we be here all the questions that as Durkas, we want an answer to we want represented yeah so what that's kind of i think what adam touched on is that he was in yemen by coincidence when all the action took place before it became a place that people who read about the yeah Middle but East he also about. thinks that shit started at the arab springs i mean no i think there was what a he gulf was saying war before that there was like a lot of things israel palestine there was like 9-11 that happened but he's talking about Iraq. his selection to yemen yeah. specifically and the fact that the Arab Spring did just, sensationalize. Yeah, he just so happened to graduate when this kicked in, but the, it had been going on. Like, the focus on the Middle East has been real for... For a while, yes. For a while, but since I the think Berlin that, Wall. Yeah, but I think that as uh, a journalist, fell. both him and I did feel that there was a second wave that came out of nowhere once the Arab Spring started of, of young journalists who just really wanted to go there for the thrill, to have, like, that action moment to report on it kind of vice style and to just get back, to make their name just instantly, to find a place where something very dangerous is happening to go report on it and just make a name. They don't want to, they don't want to work. They don't want to go there and like write about it for years. They want that quick fast food yeah, result. And what's infuriating is what, when you talk to them, they don't like, for instance, I have a friend who did exactly what you said. Arab spring went to Egypt he did prestigious university in the United States. He goes to Egypt and he wants to teach people how to build a republic or how to be a democracy. So we're having this conversation in Paris and I'm telling him, well, 
by the people for the people like maybe you respect the sovereignty maybe what you're doing is some kind of infiltration like what what would be my fate if i try to infiltrate your well, government yeah. and, and tell them that would be illegal you can't do yeah, that but that's kind of so the, kind of the risk they they meet on the ground right like people in the middle east are distrusting of journalists they think that they are spies they no, don't not spies it's more it's the relationship so he's asking what to do to help and i'm like if you really want to help get a job in your own state department in your own congress and change the relationship between the two countries you going to egypt to make a fast name and under the guise of you're helping you're not helping your your job depends on a problem existing so in the minute you confront them with this that you're 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 untokened your well, your token value is gone you're no longer like a valid um durka a, a valid opinion they will favor Come help us. Come help us. We want no, democracy. No, I, I think that's such a vast generalization just because I worked with so many journalists and I think that a lot of them actually go to report for newspapers. Like they are on a mission sent to report for that specific area. Like, for example, NPR would have a person based somewhere and they would travel around and get news because that is their employee. And I think in, by re you know, in reverse, Middle Eastern newspapers have journalists from the Middle East here in the U.S. to report. And that's just a standard practice. Yeah, I wasn't right? specifically just talking about journalists. This guy was, he graduated from Yale or Stanford and he just went there to help people build the country. Yeah. Like, how are you, like, you have a paper that says you, you, you sat in the classroom. How are you going to build a country I think when it's, it, takes, it takes thousands of years to build like a nation but that's naivety but what you're talking about it's not naivety about. it's arrogance i think it's it's, it's, it's also naivety and it's it's savior complex it's thinking that you have that knowledge you do not like go live there all your life and maybe pass on something write a book but you cannot help build another country that you've never lived in that you don't even speak the language that's just like it's decorated neocolonialism And, yeah. and, the, and the fact that he couldn't even tolerate my opinion, that it's discarded because it doesn't go with, with his, his idea. flow, yeah. that's what I call, that's so, the tokenism. Actually, I just want to say something about that. How do you get people to see that they have privilege? That is something that I've struggled with, right? For example, uh, how do you see that you're doing this? Because a lot of people come about and they're like, I mean, well, I'm trying to help. This is not what I think of things. But it's like, no, but that's exactly what you're doing. Well, they get very hostile. And another thing is that they, usually that type of psychological profile will not tolerate your own privilege. Like if you're a privileged Durka, that discards you because they like you poor and over-religious. Well, if you don't subscribe to that, then you're dismissed. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying. I've been thinking about that. And I was like, it involves them share shattering the way that they look at themselves and that's really hard for me yeah. to sit there and be like no i'm going to destroy everything you think about yourself just to make sure that you understand what i'm saying but i think that this conversation we should save it for another week but talking about places that need rebuilding let's jump in into our orientalism expressed so for this week i actually chose a segment that was funny that really helped shape my life Jack, can you play the segment Damn. for us? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I gotta go. Oh, my bingling. <laughs> I'll wait for you. Do you even know how long you're gonna be gone? Well, just until we find an energy source to replace fuel. <laughs> oh. Well, I'll write you every day. 15, Yemen Road, 
Yemen. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. You've seen that episode? Yes, I have. Uh, that, that episode is significant to me because at the time nobody, was ta- nobody knew what Yemen is. Right? It's like the farthest location, like most obscure, where, she, where his ex-girlfriend won't follow him. So it's like, oh, yeah, the farthest hole in the earth. So those who love Friends might have seen this episode. They know exactly what that was. They know exactly that laugh. Yeah, what was her that name? That high pitched yeah, no, voice. Janice. Janice. So that's Janice, and that's Chandler Bing, and he was with Janice for a while, and he needs to get away from her, and he can't find a way where he can kind of break up with her. So he decides to come up with a plan, and the only place he can think of where she wouldn't follow him to is Yemen. So I don't know whether that's flattering or not, because like if he said Paris, she'd be like, oh my God, I'll come visit you. And like, yeah, man, she was like, oh. Yeah, that's the line. That's Goodbye. like the ultimate um, dust hole. <laughs> well, I, I kind of want to have a mug that says 15 Yemen Road, Yemen. Um, I've met people in America and they go like, hey, where are you from? And this was like pre, like before terrorism was like a huge thing. Hey, where are you from, Yemen? And then they have this smile and I'd be like, what's up? They're like, I didn't know it was a real country. Like Chandler Bing, Yemen. And it's like, um, yes, like Chandler Bing Yemen. And then it's funny. Like, they're just laughing the entire time because they can't take me seriously. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But in a sense, it put Yemen out there. A little bit. You know, like, I'll take it. Their outfits were not so insulting. And he asked this woman if he could stay with her. So there was no sense of it being barbaric or filled with terrorists or dangerous. It was just... Wow, that place way out there. Right. So right at fifteen Yemen Road, Yemen. Uh, by the way, that's my address. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what. Yeah, I just started getting letters in the mail. Dear Chandler, yeah, I missed you so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking of myself, Algerian, Yemen. What was Yemen? I mean, definitely, you contributed a lot to uh, expanding my view on Yemen. It's not like... Uh, yes, that's what I like to yes, hear. Yes, yes. I mean, Yemen is that... Pl- Yemen is it, it, kind of like Kiev yeah. in Ukraine. It's like the cradle of Arab civilization, but everybody's talking about Russia. Yes. You know? Exactly. So that's, and I think, also, I think it's a country that both Arabs and Westerners don't know enough about. It's just there, and it's impacted by everything that goes on. It's impacted by media. It's impacted by movements. We are so much under the influence of the world, yet we don't get an opportunity to influence the world back as much as we should. Well, Chandler Bing, thank Chandler. you for Yemen. <laughs> well, talking about friends, um, to extend this uh, Orientalism Express just a little bit, it was yesterday, actually, um, it's still Chandler and Monica, and she's trying to make this dinner for him, this amazing sensual dinner, and she makes couscous. Uh, couscous is kind of the national dish of North Africa. Africa. And so she invites him to have some couscous, and she's like, yeah, we, it's, this is couscous. We, it's, it's meant to be eaten with your hands because it makes the experience more sensual. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what the, what? 
Yeah. First of all, don't try that at home. Like that's disgusting. Like look at couscous. Don't you don't want to. It's gross. And definitely, people who eat it with their hands are that poor. Didn't have exactly utensils. So that's not disgusting. They just don't have a choice. They're making do. That reality eat. doesn't even exist now. Well, in, in the other parts, it might. No. Think of the border. Seriously, think of this area uh, where. Morocco borders Algeria. I cannot speak for Morocco, but I've been in the desert deep, deep down, and we've used utensils. Like you, and people who uh, eat with their hands, like I've seen... That's funny. In London, I've seen people eating with their hands. I love eating and, with my and, hands. And they weren't trying to be central. I just won't eat rice with it. It'd be hard. You know, it's like, like saying, I wouldn't oh, eat chopsticks with my hands. So sensual, like stick in your mouth. I love, no. I love dips with my hand. I love to like pick up dips, uh, food or something or... I, I love eating with my hands, but I know that I won't eat couscous with my hand. I like that's that's it's hard. messy, but she I, I don't have a problem of, with it's the, the idea eating of with sensual. Hands. That's that's Come the on. problem. We're not eating with our hands because it's sensual. It's what like, are we? Ooh, couscous so sensual, like you know, the bowl of pasta I eat with your hands. I so. mean, if they're trying to be sensual, they definitely won't be feeding you. So that was about <laughs> but, it. like just putting that out there. Couscous never knew it was a. But Friends was like a, a wasn't a very offensive show. It really wasn't. It was extremely offensive. Like these people live in a planet where there are no uh, African American, Asian. Like they oh, live in their true. little yeah. planet. It's no, but they did bring sexist. in like a black like professor by the end, so that Ross can stick it into her and like that's She's it. Token. She's like sidekick. She's token. Yeah. Like no, that show is offensive. What I mean, I'm I enjoy is it. It could have been worse. Could it? <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> it a bubble show. Worse. I mean, it was really funny as long as you're in that bubble and you accept that, you know, those limitations. But no, definitely no token Durka in France. All right. Just and mentions. on that note, I think we have come to an end for this episode. Everyone who's listening to us, this is District Durkas. You can check out our website online at www.districtdurkas.com. Our handle on Instagram is also at Durkas.com. Moving forward, we'd love to hear more from you. Feel free to reach out to us. We want to talk to you. We want to hear from you. Um, so ultimately, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, come surf with us on Full Service Radio. Yeah, and like always, thank you, Jack, for helping with the episode. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.